reading from 1 Corinthians. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a human being came death, by a human being has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in turn, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers and sisters, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. The word of the Lord. The Lord be with you. The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Luke. Glory to you, Lord Jesus Christ. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in a dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, why do you seek the living among the dead? He's not here, but he has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinners and be crucified and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and the other woman with them who told these things to the apostles. Now these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in, and he saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. The Gospel of Christ. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. Remain standing, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word through which you speak and reveal yourself to us. So I pray in light of that truth that I as preacher just get out of the way, far, far less of me, far, far more of you. That your people gathered this day would be edified in your son Jesus, the risen Jesus, be glorified. For we ask this in his name. Amen. Would you be seated, please? 
Where is our hope? For it seems that hope is in short supply these days. We've probably all had seasons of our lives where a series of successive negative events have predisposed us to anticipate more of the same, leaving us anxious, pessimistic, waiting for the next shoe to drop, stealing ourselves up for the next body blow. It would seem collectively that we are in such a state. Globally, a series of successive negative events have predisposed us for a future of more of the same. A pandemic, wave after wave, variant after variant. Racially driven murders, bodies uncovered, injustices exposed. Geopolitical tension, war, genocide, the threat of nuclear chemical deployment. Climate catastrophe warnings that we are at or near a point of no return. Where is our hope? For it would seem that hope is in short supply these days. And yet today we stand before an empty tomb. Today, cries of grief turn to shouts of joy. He is risen. And we say, here, here before an empty tomb, here, here before a risen Jesus, here is our hope, here is our hope. But what is that hope? And does it have any bearing on our current reality? In the 15th chapter of Paul's letter to the church in Corinth, Paul reflects deeply on the hope that Jesus brings in his resurrection. And it is there that we must go to reorient ourselves to that truth of this hope over and over again. And so if you have your Bible with you, or a Bible app, or the Bible in front of you, your pew Bible on page 176 of that pew Bible, I'll invite you to turn there to 1 Corinthians 15, beginning at verse 19. Now here, Paul is uh, writing only 20 years after the actual events. And he opens this chapter on the resurrection by seeking to pile up the evidence of what he seeks and knows to be historical fact. And it almost seems to come in the form of a challenge. If you don't believe this, ask Peter, ask James, Ask the 500 others who have seen him alive. This is no hallucination, no wishful thinking, no spiritual experience. This really happened. And because it happened, we can have a material, concrete hope. And then he spends the rest of the chapter unveiling the nature of that hope. We pick up at verse 19. For in this life only we have hoped in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. Oh, okay, we might say, I, I, I think I, I know the nature of this hope. 
It's not about this life. It's about life after death, about going to heaven when, when I die, my soul being freed from the bounds of my decaying material reality, being free from the changes and chances of this life. What a great hope. And I think at that, Paul might give us a bit of a look, a look of both curiosity and loving concern. No, 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 no that, that, that's not the hope that I mean. By resurrection hope, I mean nothing less the, the unwinding of everything that is wrong with the world. By resurrection hope, I mean nothing less than an entirely new future, a future where every aspect of the material creation would blossom into the fullness of what God intended for it, pulsating with life and love and justice and peace. Friends, you've got to expand the horizons of your hope, for in Jesus, in his resurrection, you can have a hope that far surpasses anything that you can possibly imagine. Come on, Paul. How, how can this be? I mean, how can the action of one person bring all of this about? How can the resurrection from the dead, as incredible as it is, renew the entire cosmos? Come on, Paul. And Paul seems to anticipate such a retort. And he responds with an image that he often leans into in his writings to uncover the glorious work of God in Jesus. Verse 22. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. How can one person, one act, bring all of this about? Well, says Paul, you already know something of how that works. In Adam, all die. Take a look at the world. You've got two universal truths. Everyone dies and everyone sins. Of course everyone dies, right? I mean, the death rate has always been the same, 100%. One death for every one person. Do we all sin? Are we all by nature sinners? It certainly seems to be the reality, right? Even though he doesn't use the same terms, even the well-published Oxford professor and atheist Richard Dawkins and Paul would find common ground here. In his book, The Selfish Gene, Dawkins writes this, The primary human drive is not the preservation of the species, but rather the preservation of the self. We are driven by self-interest. Even altruistic behavior may find its roots in self-interest. How can one person, one act, impact the future of the cosmos? Take a look at reality, says Paul. You know how this works. All die, all sin. Why? Well, because we are in Adam. Adam's act of rebellion led to fallenness for all, sin to all, death to all, a reality that has rippled out through human history to catastrophic effect. War, violence, ethnic cleansing, slavery, injustice, greed, to name but a few. Such is the effect of our being 
in Adam. And if all of that happens, if we are in Adam, how much greater, how much more glorious will be the benefits if we are in Christ, united to him by faith? Reuben Torrey, great preacher of the 19th century, was reflecting on this image that Paul uses. And it came to light even more for him when he witnessed something while he was mountain climbing. He was watching a, a team in front of him climbing a mountain. Uh, five men, all connected to the same rope. The last man fell. The weight of his fall pulled the next off, and then the next, and then the next. And soon all four of them were tumbling down the mountain onto the rocks below. And right at the top, the first man who was climbing up the mountain saw what was going on. He was the strongest, the most powerful of them. And Tori said that he saw this man grab his pickaxe and with a great heave he threw it into a crevice in the rock and held on for what he knew was coming. A sickening snap of the rope. The moment his body jerked, but he held on. The rope constricted around his waist, strangling him, cutting off his breath, causing him to bleed, his ribs to crack. And then after that moment, as the rope was taut now, he began to pull with all of his strength as the men behind him found their footing. One climber fell, leading to fallenness for all. One climber sacrifices his body, leading to salvation for all. In Adam all die, all sin. In Christ, by faith, we have the glorious hope of an entirely new future. And Paul then begins to set the trajectory for us to that new future, of what it means for us to be in Christ with an affirmation that he repeats twice over. Verse 23. For Christ is the first fruits. Now because we don't live in an agrarian society, it's hard for us to enter into the power of what Paul is telling us here. You see, in a, a typical town, all of the town's hopes and all of their wealth would literally be plowed into the ground. And then with that first ear of grain as it pushed out, it was a time of great joy as they had that first taste of an actual future. The guarantee that there was more to come. Christ is the first fruits. His resurrection, the first taste of what is to come. And what is to come? Well, at Jesus' coming, verse 23, the dead in Christ are raised to new life. The living in Christ will be transformed into his likeness. And then, verse 24, comes the end. When Jesus delivers the kingdom, the whole of creation renewed and shot through with his beauty, his grace, his justice, his love, remade in ways that are far more glorious, far more perfect than we could ever possibly imagine. What is our hope? 
nothing less than creation blossoming into the fullness for which God created it. So what do we do in light of that hope? How then shall we live? What impact does that hope have on our current reality? What is the therefore? Is it Christ is risen? Therefore, sit back, relax, God's got it in hand, eat, drink, be merry. No, no, don't, don't see that here. Is it Christ is risen, so be good little Christians and follow all the Christian rules so you don't disqualify yourself from that future? No, no don't, don't see that here either. So what is it then? Christ is risen, therefore... Verse 58, be steadfast, immovable. Some of our most beloved stories in literature contain some common storylines. There's a love to be found, an enemy to be defeated, a people to protect, a future to secure. And the most masterful storytellers lead us on a journey where how we hope the story will end seems in jeopardy. The love is lost. The hero is betrayed. The enemy's diabolical ends seem inevitable. And the best of writers are able to bring us to feel as if those things are actually happening. To feel the pain and the sorrow and the fear and the worry and the anger alongside the characters. But what if we started reading by going to the last couple of chapters, discovering how the story ended up? The the, the love that is restored, the enemy that is vanquished, the future that is secured. Well, yes, you might say that, that would kind of ruin the story. But the many twists and turns in the story where such an end seemed in jeopardy, wouldn't quite have the same power to stir up within us sorrow and anger and fear and worry. We would in some ways be immovable, steadfast. In the resurrection, we have revealed the last chapter. We know how the story ends. And so the changes and chances of life, the successive negative events will rightly, yes, stir up in us worry and sorrow and pain and fear. But underneath, there will be a hope, a foundation of sure trust that all things will be remade and shot through with his beauty, his justice, his love, his grace, rendering us in the midst of the changes and chances of life immovable, steadfast. He is risen, therefore be steadfast, immovable. Then continues Paul, verse 58, abounding in the Lord's work. He is risen, therefore abound in the Lord's work. What's the Lord's work? No, you you, you tell us, Tim. I mean, you're the minister. You're all about the Lord's work, right? And oh yeah, those, those mission partners we pray for, they're, they're about the Lord's work. Oh yeah, when, when you call us to volunteer for something in the church, you're asking us to do the Lord's work. And, and when we give, we give to the Lord's work, right? 
Yes, but is that really all that Paul means by the Lord's work? No. No, you see, in, in verse 24, Paul defines the Lord's work. Delivering the kingdom of God is the Lord's work. And how does Jesus accomplish that work? Well, the next part of the verse explains. By destroying every rule, every authority, every power. By putting all his enemies under his feet. That's the Lord's work. Now, the the church, the follower of Jesus, we're to be about the Lord's work, right? So perhaps uh, we need to change our mission statement as a church from little trinity, love God, grow together, serve our world, to little trinity in Jesus, destroying every power, every authority, every ruler. Or uh, little trinity, putting Jesus' enemies under his feet. Of course we wouldn't do that, right? It would be read by our culture in ways that we didn't intend it. But that does not negate that Jesus' work is indeed to rid the world of everything that is destroying God's good creation. To rid the world of sin, death, disease, injustice, sorrow, pain. And not to do that work following the patterns of the world, the patterns of violence and oppression and coercion, but to do that work in keeping with the patterns of the cross, the patterns of self-giving love and laying down power for the sake of the other. So in a very real way then, any work that is done animated by a vision of God's kingdom, animated by a vision of the new creation, pushing back at the enemies of God's good creation is the Lord's work. The artist who yearns for beauty, the lawyer who strives for justice, the healthcare worker who lays a foundation for health, the social worker who puts supports around a family, the educator who's enabling the apprehension of truth, Any work that is animated by a vision of the kingdom, a vision of the new creation, pushing back at the enemies of God's good creation, that is the Lord's work. And Paul is saying, participate in the hope of the resurrection by abounding in that kind of work. And then he concludes, for in light of the resurrection, that work is not in vain. Meaning in some mysterious way, that work will last into the new creation. That work will be in some ways the building blocks that God uses for the renewal of all things. Now, that might to you be a new thought. Might be a rather scandalizing thought. But let me put it this way. This will seem like a very odd segue. But bear with me. The hope of the resurrection led our Christian forebears to some very intentional funeral practices. The dead were to be buried and nothing else. They would have been horrified by any other practice. Why? Because when Jesus returned, 
those bones would be the raw materials that God would use to form our resurrection bodies. Something of our material reality now will remain into eternity. Now, a century ago, the Western church made a decision due to hygiene and space use to allow for cremation, which I think we can readily understand and in no way limits God's power to bring about the resurrection of the dead. However, in doing so, I think we lost a powerful pointer to the truth of the resurrection. That God does not wipe out material creation to start anew. God renews what is already present. Uses what already is to form what will be. How does that relate to your work? In his book, Every Good Endeavor, Connecting Your Work to God's Work, Timothy Keller tells a story from the life of J.R. Tolkien. Tolkien at the time was in the midst of writing what would become his greatest work, The Lord of the Rings. He had this, this glorious vision of what it should be, but he just couldn't get there. He was experiencing significant writer's block. And he wrote a short story to reflect on the experience of this writer's block called Leaf by Niggle. It's about an artist. And he lives in this small town. And the town had this public building. And they hire Niggle to paint a mural on the side of the public building. They give him a lot of money, and he begins the work. And it goes on for months, and then years. And when the people walk by, they see that all that he's done is a small corner of the side of the building on which he's painted a singular leaf. It's pretty clear that he's trying to draw a tree, but he's just drawn a leaf. And they start to, to berate him, and they say, Oh, what's going on here? I mean, we've given you all of this money, and it's been a long time. Where, where's our mural? He says, I'm working on it. I'm really trying to get it done, but I, I just can't. I'm working on it. And then he dies. And he's on a, a train to eternity, a train to the new creation. And as he's going there, he sees something off in the distance. And he gets off the train, and he begins to run toward it. And this is what he sees. Before him stood the tree, his tree, finished. Its leaves opening, its branches growing and bending in the wind that Niggle had so often felt and guessed, but had so often failed to catch. He gazed at the tree, his tree, and slowly he lifted up his arms and opened them up wide and said, It's a gift. It's a gift. And here's an artist. And he could envision a tree, but all he could get out in his lifetime was a singular leaf. But the tree existed. It's there. In light of this story, Keller invites us to see how our work connects with the Lord's work. 
Let's say, he said, you go into city planning as a young person. Why? Because you've got a vision for a city, a beautiful, just, fair city. Unless you understand this, that someday the earth will be filled with the greatest of cities, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, and everything's going to be perfect, you're going to be discouraged because throughout your life, you're only going to be able to get out a leaf or the sketches of a branch. Or he says, let's say you're a lawyer and, and you go into law because you've got this vision for justice. But over your career, you're going to be incredibly disillusioned because you're going to find that so much of what you're doing to work on those things, so much of it will be minutia. And maybe once or twice in your life, you'll feel like you finally got that leaf out. You need to know this. There is a tree. There will be justice. There will be beauty There will be peace. There will be wholeness. There will be full flourishing. And such a hope will affect the way you work, the jobs you take, the money you give, the volunteer roles you inhabit, the way you parent your children, your grandchildren. Where is our hope? Today we stand before an empty tomb. Today, cries of grief turn to shouts of joy. He is risen. And we say, here, here before an empty tomb. Here, here before a risen Jesus. Here is our hope. Here is our hope. For our resurrection hope is nothing less than the renewal of all things, that material creation blossoming into the fullness for which it was created. This day, this Easter, Expand the horizons of your hope and be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the Lord's work. For in light of the resurrection, that work is not in vain. Hallelujah. Christ is risen. The Lord is risen indeed. Hallelujah. Amen. You've just listened to a podcast from Little Trinity Church in Toronto. Please check out our website at www.littletrinity.org to find out more about our ministries and services.